Good evening again and welcome. We're grateful for you being here tonight. We're thankful for the opportunity to be together. It is, it's been a beautiful day and we are thankful for the opportunity to be together this evening as we close out the first day of the week. We are looking tonight at Genesis chapters 1 through 3 as we consider together the first couple, Adam and Eve. And as we look at Genesis chapters 1 through 3, we are reminded of the history of man. And not just the history of man, but the fall of man. And as a result of the fall of mankind of the garden, great and great problems have affected the human family. And we have been dealing with the consequences of their fall ever since. And so tonight we look at Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And as you think about Adam and Eve, I want to just very quickly remind you that they are spoken of, historically speaking, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. And you remember in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus was asked by the religious leaders in the long ago concerning divorce. You remember they asked, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Jesus went all the way back to the beginning and said, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And so God, of course, is the creator. And when we read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we are reminded of His handiwork. And so tonight, I want to begin our study by first and foremost talking about this distinctive prohibition set forth to the first couple. So, if you will, go back and look with me for a moment or two. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible introduces us to God the Creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 26... God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And so here we are introduced to the creation of mankind. God is the one who made Adam. Matter of fact, in chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says that He made man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Now, bear in mind that there is the outward man as well as the inward man. The Hebrew writer tells us in chapter 12, verse 9, God is the Father of our spirit. And so there is a unique part of us in the sense we're like God. We will live forever. That's one of the ways that we are created in the image and the likeness of Almighty God. And so God created the first couple. The Bible tells us in chapter 2 that God caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam. While in that deepened sleep, God extracted a rib from the side of Adam. And from that rib, He made the woman and brought her unto the man. And you remember Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from the man. Now, in chapter 3, the Bible tells us that this woman's name was Eve. And she is the mother of all living. And you remember over in Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul was preaching in the city of Athens. He's on Mars Hill and he's talking to these people about the nature of the one true God. And you recall Paul said that God has made 
of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And the idea is, out of one, God made the human family. So we all trace our origin back to the first couple, don't we? God was the divine creator. And so God created man. God created the woman. And then the text tells us in chapter 2 that God placed man in a utopian environment, the Garden of Eden. The purpose for Adam and Eve being in the Garden of Eden was, according to God, they were to tend it, to keep it. In other words, they were to cultivate it, weren't they? With regard to man, made in the image and the likeness of God, I want to just very quickly inject, you remember in Psalm 8, David there talks about the glory of Almighty God. And he makes reference to the heavens that God had made. He said, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the sun and moon which you've ordained, he asks this question, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? And then he said this, you made him a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. So man is a unique being. We are unlike the animal world, aren't we? And so here you have the creation of man, and then note, if you would, the command to mankind. Pick up with me, if you would, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. God said, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But He said, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat thereof you will surely die. Now two thoughts here. Number one, the clarity of this command. God was crystal clear, wasn't He? As we say sometimes. God said, you're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat thereof, you will surely die. So number one, that command was crystal clear. Number two, it was concise, wasn't it? God didn't use a lot of verbiage in setting forth this divine command. Now, I want you to just tuck that away for a minute and hold it because I want to come back to it in just a moment or two. So, first and foremost, the distinctive prohibition. God has placed man in the Garden of Eden. They have been commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, secondly, I want to talk about the diabolical, if you would, the diabolical perpetrator. So let's look now at chapter 3. In chapter 3, here's what Moses records. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The serpent here, the identity of this serpent, we know to be the devil, Satan, the adversary of mankind. So his identity. This is our first introduction to the devil in Scripture. Now, there are a lot of folks that have a lot of questions about the origin of Satan. It might be the case that you have spent some time and studied the origin of this being. And there are a lot of people that have asked some very profound questions with regard to Satan. But I want to submit to you tonight that Satan is a created being. He is not on a plane equal to deity. But rather, Satan is a created being. 
any power that he has has been granted him by Almighty God. Now you remember in Exodus chapter 20 at verse 11, God said in the long ago through Moses, in six days he made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul there talking about the agency by which the world was made, that being the Christ. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And he said, By Him were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Satan is a spirit being. And according to Jesus in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, spirits do not possess flesh and blood. Satan is a spirit being. Now, again, with regard to the origin of Satan, the Bible really doesn't have a lot to say about his origin. I want to call attention to a couple of passages, and I will encourage you to read these passages and maybe think carefully about what the prophets had to say in the long ago with regard to Satan. I do remember in Luke chapter 10, for example, in about verse 18, Jesus said on one occasion, I saw Satan like lightning fall from heaven. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the Bible tells us that the devil sinned from the beginning. And then you remember in 2 Peter chapter 2, in about verse 4, God talked about the angels that sinned and how God had cast them down to the Hadean realm, a place called Tartarus in the original. It is the abode of the unrighteous. Well, those angels that sinned, they have been confined, and there they await the judgment of Almighty God. So I want to call attention very quickly to a couple of passages in the Old Testament. The first passage would be found in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah chapter 14, the prophet speaks here of the fall of Babylon. And primarily he is referencing the king of Babylon. And we know the Babylonians were a very strong and mighty nation of people. Nebuchadnezzar was their well-known king in, the days, in days gone by, to mention one. In Isaiah chapter 14, Isaiah talks about the fall of Babylon and her king. And listen, if you would, to verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. And then there is another passage that I would call your attention to. It's found in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. And now reference is made to Tyre. And God, through the prophet Ezekiel, is taking up an oracle against the king of Tyre. Note, if you would, verse 11. Now, before I read this, I want to just very quickly state that one of my major professors 
And we used a textbook that he had written, Systematic Theology. And I remember one of the things that he stressed, and again, this was his opinion. He believed that Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 were a personification of the fall of Satan. He was probably one of the best Bible students that I've ever known. And it may be that you would agree with his conclusion. It might be that you don't. There are some scholars, very reputable scholars, that do not believe there is any reference in these two passages to the fall of Satan. But I do think that they carry a lot of weight and they're worthy of our consideration as we talk about the devil. So look now at verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then drop down, look at verse 14. He said, You were anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfected in your ways from the day you were created. Till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. So I encourage you to read these passages and maybe to give some careful consideration to what the prophets had to say, and you can draw your own conclusions. But again, Satan is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He's not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. Nor is he omnipresent, ever-present. He is not on a plane equal to deity. The devil is a created being, and ultimately he stands condemned by Almighty God, doesn't he? The devil has a date with destiny. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25? The Lord Jesus said that when he comes in all of his glory, he'll say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Now listen to this. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Gehenna, the hell of fire, was not prepared for the human family. Rather, it was, it was prepared for the devil and his angels. And so, with that in mind, we think about the identity of the one we're reading about in Genesis 3. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about the identity of the devil. You remember, for example, in Matthew chapter 4, he is identified by Matthew as the tempter. In Matthew chapter 13, in about verse 38, he is described as the wicked one. In verse 39 of that same opening, he is described as the enemy. Peter said he walks about like a roaring lion. He is an adversary. And so the devil, clearly spoken of, in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. In John chapter 12, Jesus identified him as the prince or the ruler of the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4, Paul said he's the God of this age. That's the one we're talking about. 
Now, here's the question. What then is his intent? What are his intentions? I said a minute ago that he is a created being. He stands condemned. Ultimately, he will be cast into the lake of fire. One of the things that obviously was contributory to his downfall had to do with pride. Because you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7, Paul said that those who serve as elders are not to be a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, they fall into the condemnation of the devil. So pride obviously was at the root of the downfall of this being. So what about his intentions? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, those intentions are made abundantly clear. And what is that? The devil is intent on deceiving and destroying the crown of God's creation. When you read Genesis chapter 3, and as you reflect back on chapters 1 and 2, to remember everything God had made was described by Him as very good. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. And now Satan has come on the scene to drive a wedge between God, the Creator, and His creation. So listen to what the text has to say. The serpent comes on the scene... And he poses this question to Mother Eve. Listen to him. Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not touch it, nor eat it, lest you die. Well, God did say they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but He never said anything about not touching it. The woman added that, which reminds us that people sometimes add to the Word of God, and sadly, sometimes they take from the Word of God. The goal is to be biblical, to be balanced and biblical in our Christian walk. So, listen now to what the record says. The record says in verse 4, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. I said just a minute ago, in the very first point, that God had set forth a distinctive prohibition. That divine command was crystal clear, concise, God said, you're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Listen, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Now, I don't think that was very difficult to understand, do you? Matter of fact, I'm not sure there is an easier to be understood sentence in the Old Testament. Now you think about, the devil comes along and tries to muddy the water, doesn't he? I mean, has God said you're not to eat of every tree of the garden? And then after Eve responded to the overture of the devil, he goes on to say, well, you won't die. That was a blatant lie, wasn't it? And didn't Jesus say in John chapter 8, verse 44, that the devil is a liar and a murderer, taking us back to the Garden of Eden? So what about the work of the devil? Listen, he is intent on deceiving the human family. What he said to Mother Eve was deceptive, wasn't he? Now, she should have remembered exactly what God said. But you think about the devil said, You will not surely die. 
All right, here's the question. Who are you going to believe, God or the devil? Now, I said a minute ago that that command was clear. It was crystal clear and concise. How many other commands in Scripture have been negated ultimately by the work of the devil? Let me just give you a couple of examples. How many times do you hear people say, you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven? A couple of weeks ago when Kevin gave the Wednesday night devotional, I could have shouted when he gave that devotional. Because what he said was so true. You remember? He talked about a Baptist preacher in a, in a, in a community preaching for a large body of people. And they sit down and they read Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And the preacher says, now on the surface, this text says what it says and means what it means, but... Listen, that's the devil. The devil says, you don't have to be baptized into Christ to go to heaven. Whenever people begin to negate the importance of, of the divine word of Almighty God, problems will occur, will they not? Now, Kevin's sitting down trying to study with this guy, and this guy's having to do gymnastic, gymnastic to somehow get around the command of Almighty God to be baptized into Christ. And then there are those that will tell you, well, you know what? I mean, you need to be baptized, but you're saved first. That's not what the Bible teaches, is it? Jesus placed baptism and belief prior to salvation. So who's right, God? Or those in the denominational world? that teach and preach, you don't need to be baptized into Christ to go to heaven. What about the church? I mean, is it really that important that you become a member of the church you read about in the Scriptures? I hear people saying from time to time, well, you know, the church is really not that important. Go back to the Garden of Eden. When God had set forth that clear command, you're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And here comes the serpent. And the serpent says, you will not surely die. That was a lie. And because of that lie, what happened to the first family? Death. Matter of fact, Paul gives us a commentary in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And death passed upon all men, for that all sinned. Romans 5, verse 12. So you have individuals that are, in many ways, minimizing the importance of what God teaches and what God says through His Word. I just gave you a couple of examples. But listen, the devil is all about deceptiveness. The devil wants to somehow mask the truth. He is the mastermind behind doubt. He wants to create doubt. Now we talk about the integrity of God and the integrity of Scripture. When God said, you're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat thereof you will surely die, the devil comes along and says, you will not surely die. Is he not casting 
doubt upon the integrity of God and His Word. God clearly said what He meant. And then here comes someone that says, well, it really doesn't mean that. So what about today? When people try to cheapen and minimize the commands of Almighty God, where did all that come from? I can tell you where it came from. It's right out of the devil's handbook. Look, the devil does not care one bit how he deceives you. He can do it through the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. He can appeal to your pride. He can use false teachers to destroy what the Bible has to say. I wonder how many people are going to stand before God on the day of judgment. It's not that they, at some point in time, were not exposed to the truth of Almighty God. That's not the problem. The problem is they chose to listen to a lie. And because they chose to listen to a lie and never obey the gospel, they are lost and they will be lost forevermore. That is sobering. So the devil, he is deceptive, and his ultimate goal, listen please very carefully, his ultimate goal is to destroy you. He wants to destroy your spiritual life. He wants you to spend eternity with him in the lake of fire. And listen, He will do everything possible to undermine your soul. That's why Peter said you need to withstand Him steadfast in the faith. There are folks today that sadly have turned a deaf ear to the purity of the teaching of the gospel of Christ. Listen, the gospel is not hard to understand. No more so than Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It's not that the commands of Almighty God are difficult to understand. The problem, again, is there are people that have muddied the waters. And they have undermined the clear, concise teaching of Almighty God. I know that there are a lot of folks that take baptism out of the New Testament, and they'll talk about how it's really not that that essential. I guess they know more than Jesus. Because Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Who are you going to believe? Jesus said, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. You can go through every act of conversion spoken of by Luke in the book of Acts. Every single time, the people did the very same thing. What did they do? They believed Jesus was the Son of God. They repented of their sins, they confessed the name of Christ, and they were immersed in water so that their sins might be washed away, Acts 22, 16. They became members of the body of Christ that you read about in Scripture. And if you and I were to have taken a poll in the first century and asked the question to those who were present, by the way, what church do you belong to? You know what they'd have said? Just the church. There were no denominations in the first century. The New Testament church is of divine origin. It exists according to the eternal purpose of Almighty God, Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. 
And only those who are in the church that you read about in Scripture have the promise of heaven. Ephesians 5, verse 23. He is the Savior of the body. And if you haven't done what the Savior said to do to get into the body, you're not in the body. And if you're not in the body, you're not among the saved. And if you're not among the saved, that means you're lost. That means you're without hope and without God in this world. And that is exactly what the devil wants. That's it. Don't leave here tonight and think, well, I don't know what the Bible teaches. I don't want you to leave here and have any misunderstanding about what you need to do to become a New Testament Christian. Don't leave here and say, well, you know, I wonder if. Listen, I'm here. You can talk to me anytime after the services. Brother Billy, Brother Dio, we'll sit down, we'll talk as long as you want to talk. We're going to try to see what God says about the matter. Now note if you would, very quickly. In verse 6, the Bible says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes. What was it John said, 1 John 2? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Is that not present here? And then he said, And a tree desirable to make one wise. He took of its fruit and ate. Pride. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And then the text tells us in verse, look at verse 6, or rather verse 8. Amazingly, Adam and Eve tried to hide from the presence of God. And you remember, God called out, Adam, where are you? Did God know where Adam was? Sure he did. We were talking about deity here. God knows everything. God wasn't asking Adam, okay, Adam, tell me where you are. No, God asked so that Adam might reflect upon his condition, where he was in the grand scheme of things. And you remember what he said? Ultimately, he tried to blame Eve. Well, he was at fault. She was at fault. And as a result, we have... Thirdly, and very quickly, the divine plan. Note, if you would, verse 15. We don't have time to go into all the text, but I do want to look at verse 15, because herein lies the gospel in seed form. God said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Down in verse 21, the Bible says that the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed Adam and Eve. And I think underneath this statement, there was a blood sacrifice offered for the first couple. And you can begin reading in Genesis chapter 4 and following, and there were blood offerings. Why? Because blood is necessary for life, isn't it? We're talking about spiritual life here. So, here we have the beginning of the unveiling of the promised seed, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would come into the world. Now you recall over in Genesis chapter, or rather Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul raises the question, Wherefore then serveth the law? He said it was added because of transgression, till the seed should come 
to whom the promise was made. In verse 16 of that same chapter, the Apostle Paul said, To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, And to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So here you have Moses recording for us the promised seed, the one who ultimately would come to save the world. When we talk about the redemptive plan of God, God was the architect, wasn't He? In other words, God was the source behind this redemptive plan. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about how this plan was foreordained before the world began, but manifest in the last times, he said, for us. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about how every spiritual blessing resides in Christ. It is, as he said, in the heavenly places, in Christ. And then he goes on to say, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself. So, Paul here simply saying that God had a plan in place. When man sinned in the Garden of Eden, and by the way, God endowed man with free will, didn't He? We're not robots, but rather God has given us the ability to make choices. Joshua said it well, choose you this day whom you'll serve. Jesus said in John chapter 7, if any man wills to do his will... It's up to us. We make choices every day in life. Adam and Eve, they made the wrong choice. When they made the wrong choice, death entered, death entered into the world. And we have all kinds of problems because of what occurred in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the shining star because Moses is pointing to the coming of the Christ and all people, going all the way back to Adam, all people will ultimately be saved by what means? By the blood of Jesus. He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You can go back to the period of the patriarchs, the Mosaic dispensation, the Christian era. Everyone who ultimately will be saved will be saved by one source. That's the blood of Jesus. That's it. Jesus, in Genesis chapter 3, would ultimately have his heel bruised, that signifying his death on Calvary. But Moses said he would bruise the head of the serpent, delivering unto the devil a death blow. The Hebrew writer said he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And listen, when it's all said and done, you want to be on the winning side, you need to be on God's side. The devil is a loser. And when history comes to a close, when the world is terminated and we stand before Almighty God one day, the devil and his angels and his people will be cast into the lake of fire. But the righteous will go home to be with God forevermore. And so Moses here is pointing us in the direction of the Christ. And all of those Old Testament prophets were pointing to the coming of the Savior, the Son of God. And they were all saying over and over again, Christ is coming. And you come to Matthew chapter 1, and the Bible says the Christ has come. And the Christ who has come has ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of Almighty God. And one day He'll come again. 
He will come as a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works therein are going to be burned up. So where will you stand on that final day? Will you be numbered among God's people? You know, there are only two families we read about in Scripture. On the one hand, you have the devil's family. On the other hand, you have God's family. You need to be in God's family. You need to be a part of His divine body. Wish we had more time. But thank you for your kind attention tonight. If you're here tonight and you haven't obeyed the gospel, you need to do that tonight. To understand the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. The flip side is the gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus. If you will obey the gospel of Christ, you can be added to the body of Christ. Enjoy the benefits of the blood of Christ, which washes away all sin, Ephesians 1.7. And if you're faithful unto death, the promise is the crown of life. As a fellow said one time, that's not about it, that's it. That's it. You want to go to heaven. I know you want to go to heaven. The question is not, do you want to go to heaven? The question is, are you on the road to heaven? You've got to get on the road first, and then you've got to stay on the road. And ultimately, when life comes to a crashing halt, step out into eternity and there be met by the Lord, and to be with Him forevermore. If you're here tonight and you're not what you ought to be as a child of God, you're not faithful, could we pray with you and for you as we stand and sing for your encouragement?